Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 30th, 2016. This is episode 1882 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Ending Show of the Week, the Listener Council Q&A. Uh, I've got a rather abbreviated one today because uh, I'm coming up on a vacation. I've had so much going on with the aviary that I'll tell you about uh, that I wasn't able to get out a new list of questions to the expert council this week. It's okay, though, because uh, Doc Bones did double duty this week, kind of like uh, Tim Glantz did last week. So we have four, and I've got some stuff I'm going to tell you about, too. I'm going to lead off today telling you about an incredible new course. You have an opportunity to take a webinar with Toby Hemingway who's one of the most outstanding teachers available in the, the permaculture world. And this is the course that you're going to want to take if you're the person with the with the, the small backyard. If you're the person that thinks, I'd like to do all the stuff Jack talks about, but I've only got you know a half acre, a quarter acre, a tenth of an acre, something like that, this is the course. This is about turning your backyard into Guy's garden. And Toby is the guy to teach you that. I'll tell you about that today. I'm going to talk, uh, well, actually, Doc Bones is going to answer a question on dealing with venomous snake bites, and I have some thoughts on that one in follow-up. Erica Strauss is going to talk about the old practice of wax-sealed canning and, and why it's not really recommended anymore. Steve Harris is going to talk about dealing with insulin storage in a mobile environment, and he's going to get quite animated because this is a life-and-death subject. Uh, and then Doc Bones will uh, round out the bookends here and give you natural remedies and ways of dealing with allergies. I'm then going to finish the show up with um, an update on our aviary and aquaponics projects and talk to you about why I'm going that way and why I think it is a smart way for many people in, let's say, environmentally challenged locations such as myself to go. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1882. Alex Shrugged has three lined up for us today and some bullet points in other news. We have, number one, the Knights of Columbus and the Oaths We Take. Number two, Gay Science and the Death of God. And then we have, Give Us Your Huddled Masses, Except the Chinese. Yep. In other news, though, before we pick our subject of the day, a comet is seen in daylight. It passes so close to the sun it reflects a lot of light. A month layer, an aura shaped like a zeppelin travels across the sky. I'm sure it was just swamp gas. Tchaikovsky's uh, 1812 Overture is uh, done this year. It is time to cue the cannon, written commemoration of Russia's successful defense against Napoleon. And polygamy is now in the illegal in the U.S. It's the law. Will someone please tell the knuckleheads on sisterhood wives there are rules for polygamy to help one avoid the heartache? I see that on, on that TV show. The Latter-day Saints at the time were following the rules. Anyway... 
Uh, I am going to read for you today the Knights of Columbus and the oaths we take. No, they are not from Columbus, Ohio. They are from New Haven, Connecticut. Catholic immigrants to the United States have very little money. So when they get sick or the main provider dies, that would be the husband, it becomes a problem for the community. To address this problem, Father Michael McGidney organizes a mutual aid society at his local parish. He calls it the Knights of Columbus in honor of Christopher Columbus. He is also tweaking the Protestants who like Christopher Columbus but would like to forget that Chris was a Catholic. With a few government benefits available, mutual aid societies have formed to render assistance to their mentorship. Usually they focus on the orphan, the widow, and the elderly, providing insurance and pension plans. Wait, they don't have government help? They'll all die! Are they insane? No, they're not insane. They're religious people who take seriously the commandments to help the sick, the widow, and the orphan. Catholics are often excluded from mutual aid societies. They are even excluded from labor unions. So Father McGivney has taken action not by forcing Catholics onto unwilling organizations, but by creating an organization of his own. The Knights grow into a fraternal order. Since the Pope has expressed his unhappiness with the Freemasons and their oaths of secrecy, the Knights of Columbus act as an accessible alternative. They combine American patriotism with religious devotion. So naturally, the Ku Klux Klan accuses them being anti-American. Sometimes a group recommends itself not by re recommends itself not by its friends that it keeps, but by the enemies that it makes. <clears throat> My take by Alex Shrug: Catholics are as much loyal citizens of the countries in which they reside as any other. It might seem ridiculous in the 21st century to argue that they are the fifth column ready to attack the command of, at the command of the Pope. But until 1870, the Pope was not only a religious leader, but the head of the Papal States in what are now middle provinces of Italy. His secular rule has been reduced to a few acres of real estate in Rome. Stalin once smirked, The Pope? How many divisions has he got? The answer is zero, but I suspect if the President of the United States ordered a carpet bombing of the Vatican, most pilots would have refused, whether Catholic or not. The same goes for attacking Israel. When rumors suggested that President Obama would order U.S. fighters just to shoot down Israeli bombers on their way to take out Iranian nuclear facilities, religious individuals within the military circles reflected on the serious nature of such an order if were given. The oaths of loyalty had been taken, but they did not override one's oath to God. In war, people of the same religion might fight each other, but in war with a major religious dimension, I'm not sure what would happen. Something would have to be hellishly wrong for it to seem right. Yeah. Unfortunately, there have been such wars in the past. Um, I kind of look at this and just think about the fact that this is the way we should be solving problems today, what was done with the Knights of Columbus and with other mutual aid societies. Groups should get together and provide for their own communities and needs, and you should be able to choose how you insure your family, how you insure your community, and who you choose as your community. It's almost like people could actually do that without government intervention. And you'd say, well, nothing's preventing people from doing that today. On some levels, you're right. On other levels, you're wrong. And on other levels, you're completely wrong. So how much could you give to a mutual aid society in dues if you had no income tax to pay? If you had no property tax to pay? If you could take that money and choose where it went and say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate half of this money. I'm going to keep half of it, and the other half I'm going to use for all these services that I think I need if something goes wrong. You might be find that there would be you know, dozens of these mutual aid societies and competition and, and what have you and, and affinity would, would ferret out the best for your needs. I'm just saying. The other thing is, okay, well, it gets more difficult every year 
for these mutual aid societies to do what they want to do. You know, okay, you got to follow all the rules to be a nonprofit if you're going to actually be able to hold this money and not pay tax on it. Um, and the government stipulates how that works, and then what can you actually do with the money now that you're a 501c3? Um, it's almost like they don't want us solving our own problems. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Um, I want to start out with a little segment I want to do for you guys uh, on Toby Hemingway's new course coming out through Perma Ethos called Creating Gaia's Garden. We put out a post on it uh, earlier this week. We had quite a few people sign up. We are actually running out of seats. This is something, if you want to do this, you want to get signed up for it as soon as possible. And uh, you, you want to do it quickly because the early bird pricing is about to expire. The price of this course is $299. But today or tomorrow, you can get it for only $199. And if you are a Permaethos founding member, you can get an additional $50 off of that $199. You'll be able to get that off of the full price if you're a Permaethos founding member as well. Um, these are, this is not just kind of a, a recorded course. This is a live course. It's given uh, for two hours per segment. 6 p.m. Pacific, uh, and then you can figure out the other times, but there's there's five individual uh, segments. First one on October 6th, the next one on October 13th, the next one on October 20th, the next one on October 27th, and the final one on November 23rd. If you are taking this course and you can't make a, 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 a class, then yes, you do get the recorded versions of them, But the value add of this class is that you're actually able to be there with Toby, doing Q&A, working on little micro projects with individual groups. It's pretty cool how the software works. There is a post uh, on the website that, uh, that uh, was put up on the 27th. I'll link to it in today's show notes that has a six-minute video introduction to kind of explain to you how this course is going to be done. Uh, again, this is the course for the person that's maybe taken a PDC even and said, not really what I was looking for. Not really what I was looking for because a PDC is so broad. A PDC is teaching you how to read landscapes. A PDC is teaching you how to do large-scale earthworks and what have you. This is the course for the person that says, I just want to design my own backyard. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Will this course be available as a... A non-live course. Yes, it will at some point. We don't know when, we don't know exactly how, and we don't know exactly what we're going to charge for it. But you will never get the opportunity to have it with Toby like this. Again, this will be a live course with the instructor there with you the whole time with interactivity between yourself and the instructor and yourself and other students. Um, it's, it's very much like the uh, PETV presentations, except this is geared toward a much higher level of learning and understanding. And uh, we're, we're pretty excited to be working with uh, Toby on this. Um, I think you talk about bringing a world-class teacher to an audience like this. This is pretty amazing. Again, you have today and tomorrow on the early bird pricing uh, to get this $300 uh, live instructor-led course for $299 instead of, uh, instead of um, I'm sorry, for, for $199 instead of $299. And on top of that, um, you can also get another $50 off if you are a Perma Ethos founding member. So um, check into this. And again, I'm, I want to reiterate, just, I know I've said this already, but one more time. If you are the person that's looking at your backyard and going, I just want to know what to do here, this is the course. 
This is this is like the the the, the micro PDC for the backyard. You know, and if you're saying, well, okay, I have 10 acres, you still might want to take it because this is what you should be doing first. This is, and I'll, I'll, I'll save it kind of to the end, but all the stuff I've been doing for the last year here at my, my three acre property is the stuff I should have done first, focusing on the small scale system designed for quick, fast, high intensive yields, right? Uh, the stuff closest to the house is zone one. So check it out again. Create is creating Gaia's garden uh, with Toby Hemingway. Toby Hemingway is one of the most well-known, respected authors and teachers in the entire permaculture movement. He's been doing this for a very, very long time. He's also a great friend and uh, really a good friend to the TSP community. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, first one that I have for you today. Uh, this is a question for uh, Doc Bones. And uh, it's on dealing with venomous snake bites. Doc, take it away, man. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Now with over 600, no, 600, 850 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, and also the Zika Virus Handbook, both topics you might want to know a little bit about. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from John, who writes, I have a hunting club in central Florida, and we have a lot of snakes, rattlesnakes, and cottonmouths. What should I keep in our medical kit for snake bites? John, there are a lot of snake bite kits out there. You might be surprised to know that none of them are actually held in much regard, at least from a medical standpoint, these days. This is because you almost have to have them in your hand and ready to go the second you're bitten to remove any truly significant amount of venom. Likewise, don't make an incision and suck out the venom with your mouth. You'll introduce what could be a very serious infection directly into the victim. The treatment for snake bite is anti-venom, and in normal times you should get your snake bite victim to the nearest hospital which should have antivenin stored for the snake species in the area. In survival settings, this strategy might be appropriate. Keep the victim calm. Stress increases blood flow, thereby endangering the patient by speeding the venom into the system. Stop all movement of the injured extremity. Movement will move the venom into the circulation faster, so do your best to keep the limb still. Clean the wound thoroughly to remove any venom that isn't deep in the wound. Remove rings and bracelets from an affected extremity because swelling is likely to occur. Position the extremity somewhat below the level of the heart. This slows the transport of venom. Wrap with clean, loose bandages as you would an orthopedic injury, but continue it a little further up the limb than usual. With pit vipers like rattlesnakes and cottonmouths, wrapping is actually sort of controversial as it might cause tissue damage if excessive pressure is applied. If it's too tight, the patient will reflexively move the limb and spread the venom around. Don't use tourniquets. This will do more harm than good. Ditto for hot and cold packs. They could cause tissue damage and shouldn't be used either. And draw a circle around the affected area. As time progresses, you'll see the area shrink if it improves and grow if it worsens. This is a good strategy to follow for any local reaction or infection, by the way. The limb should then be rested and perhaps immobilized with a splint or sling. The less movement there is, the better. Keep the patient on bed rest and the bite site lowered in the heart for 24 to 48 hours. 
This is Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, don't forget to check out our website and store at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll find an entire line of medical kits designed by myself and Nurse Amy for just about any situation in normal times or not so normal. Thanks so much. Okay, I'm going to add something to that. I mean, it's a fantastic advice. Um, I, I nowhere near have uh, Bones' medical knowledge, not even close, but with snakes, it's something I, I know a great deal about, and I wouldn't change a thing about the advice. What I want to do is add two things to mitigate the concern and the fear. There's two fears that I want to mitigate. The first is getting bit, and the second fear is what happens after you get bit. So let's let's start with mitigating the first fear. About 85% of snake bites in North America okay, occur on the hands and lower arms and are received by males age about 15 to 30. This gives you a lot of confidence that you're probably not going to get a, uh, get bit by a snake if you do what Frank Sharp, Sharp Jr. teaches at Forger's Defense. Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. Okay, so about 85% of the snake bites in North America are what you would call illegitimate bites. Okay, um, and, and these include bites by people that are bit by snakes that are not native to the United States because they keep them in a box and they don't handle them properly. And they include bites by people that are out at a state park and go, oh, look at the snake, I bet I can catch that snake like the guy on TV, and bam, gets bit. Okay, When you add alcohol to it, it probably has a pretty big factor too. Guy's drunk, playing with a rattlesnake. He got bit. Gee, what a surprise. So the odds of getting bit are not that high to begin with, and they are lower if you don't mess with the snake. That said, like a hunt club and stuff like that, especially um, in certain times of the year, uh, cottonmouth, water moccasin, call it what you want to. One of the things you have to be really leery of is the time of the season where they're coming out of hibernation, or it's actually called burmation, uh, in the reptile world, it's a, it's a, it's not a huge distinction, but it's a distinction I won't go into just because probably no one cares. Um, but when they first kind of start coming out of their burmation period, a lot of times they are they are burmating in uh, burrows that they've made in mud, and they're in muddy areas, and the mud sticks to their skin. And before they they get really active and go swimming around and doing their thing again, they have mud all over them. And the mud dries, and then they lay on the muddy bank. That's pretty good camouflage. It's not what the snake's going for, but it is a result. Additionally, that snake is now in a, a somewhat lethargic state. It's not really very active yet. It's still kind of just sunning itself, trying to like figure out, like, okay, what am I going to eat? Is it really time to come out yet? Do I need to go back in my hole and go back to sleep? I'm not sure. Because Bur- Here's the distinction. Burmation is, if it gets really warm, they'll come out. And it gets cold again, they'll go back in, where hibernation is kind of, it starts, it stops, it's over. So that puts water moccasins in this this state where they don't really maybe move as quickly as they normally would, and they don't necessarily retreat when they might, and they're actually kind of lethargic and slow, and then you can't see them, and you step on them or very close to them, and bam. So they are a snake that, that would be one of the more likely snakes to end up tagging somebody. They don't rattle like a rattler. They also have a reputation for being assholes, and it's only because they tend to not back away. Like, they tend to hold their ground. They're not like fertilances. Fertilances are like freaking 
a rattlesnake without a rattle that somebody gave meth and crack and ecstasy to. Uh, and then a little LSD just to push it over and said, shit, that's not enough. Let's give it a little PCP. Okay, there. Here's this thing. It's, what is what is wrong with this snake, right? Um, you know, water moccasins uh, are not like that. But they have a reputation because they don't back off. And their warning is they, they hold that mouth open and they show you that white in their mouth and say, you see this? I'm going to bite you if you bother me. Which is actually quite a respectable thing to do instead of just like attacking you or, or waiting for you and ambushing you, right? So they're not really a mean snake, but they are a snake you don't want to get bit by. The rattlesnakes try to give you warnings and things. So again, keep your eyes open, pay attention. If I'm going to be hunting in an area where it's warm enough for snakes to be active and there's a lot of snakes and I'm going to be doing a lot of moving, I will wear snake leggings. I am not, I'm not too much of a, uh, or I'm not going to say I'm too much of a man to do something like that. It can save your, save your, either your life or just save you a very uncomfortable, very expensive experience. Okay. So let's just start out with this. Not that likely that you're going to get bit in the first place. The second thing, most people bitten by snakes in North America because of the types of snakes that we have and the ones that are most likely to bite would survive Without medical treatment, you're probably not going to die. That's my point. And you have more time to get to medical treatment than you would think you would. Follow all of Bones' things. Do not get excited, right? Do not freak out. I was bit when I was a teenager. I was bitten my left calf by a copperhead that I stepped on. I was about three quarters of a mile from my, my car. And when I got bit, this is exactly what I said. Son of a bitch. I didn't go, oh, and I was alone. Son of a bitch. I got in my car. I drove to the nearest store, which was a few miles away. I called 911 from a payphone. I waited for an ambulance. I didn't drive any further than I had to because if you did have some kind of serious reaction, you would be stuck on the side of the road. This is days before cell phones and things like that. But I ended up being fine. I ended up being fine. And you probably will too if you stay calm, if you stay relaxed. There are certain snakes you really don't want to get bit by in this country, though. They are both the western and eastern diamondback rattlesnake because of the sheer volume, a large one, uh, of venom that they can put into you. It's, it's, it's a very large amount of venom, especially if it's a legitimate bite. If you get a legitimate bite, it's probably because you stepped on the animal and then they're going to dump venom. You know, most of the time, not all the time, most of the time when it's like you got too close, you didn't know they were there, and they kind of reach out and strike at you, most of those bites are either dry or they are a minimal injection of venom. When a snake is like stepped on or you've grabbed it, when they, when they latch down, they pump hard. That doesn't mean a quick bite can't be very serious. It just means when you get that latched on bite, it's going to be serious every time. Another snake you really don't want to get bit by, not that you want to get bit by any, there's no venomous snakes with training wheels. Another one, though, is the Southern Pacific Rattlesnake, California. This is a very, very serious snake to be bit by. When you're, you know, just avoid them all, but if you're in areas where those three are, you need to be really paying attention to what's going on. Because those are about the three most serious. There's a lot of other species of rattlesnakes. You don't want to get bit by copperheads or uh, moccasins either, but those three are on the app. You know, like if you had to be bit, they were going to put one on you and make it bite you. Those would be three you'd want to put on a list of no on your, your scratch off list. Okay. Um, the last one that's a very serious bite, very uncommon bite, but very serious is our coral snake. 
coral snake is basically the North American version of our, our, our cobra. Okay, they're basically in the crate family. They're extremely neurotoxic, and the, the danger with those is they can be painful, or they can be almost you don't even know you were bit. And you can have immediate onset of symptoms, or it can be eight hours or a day later, or, or even more sometimes, before you have a serious reaction to it. I had a friend in the Army who had been bitten on the, on the back of his elbow by a coral snake, is the best they could determine where he was bit, And he had mowed the lawn for a girlfriend the day before that. And they, the only time they could figure that he would have even been somewhere would have been then. And he probably back, he, he remembered backing into like this bush to, to do the lawnmower. And maybe it was in there and maybe it bit him. That's about the only legitimate bite that I personally know of from a coral snake. They're small snakes. They're not very big. They're reluctant to bite, but they will. And usually it's people that find them and mess with them and they get on your fingers or whatever. And they give, and it's, it's, that's very, very serious. And you need to get medical help as soon as possible. But if you are assisting someone who's been bit and it's been bitten by one of those four animals in this country, those are going to be more like timber rattlers, I guess, is another one, size alone. Uh, Caroctus horridus is the name of that snake. Uh, they actually mean it because of the rattle that it makes. But uh, if you've ever seen a bite from a timber rattler, damage to the flesh, uh, uh, basically hemotoxic venom, And then having necrotic tissue is one of the biggest problems that we have with these large pit vipers. Use your head, wear leggings, don't mess with the snake. If you do ever get bit, stay calm, get the help. That's really the, the, the big thing there is just pay attention and you're probably never going to have to deal with it. Um, next question is for Erica Strauss on uh, old canning method using wax sealed canning. Hi, everyone. This is Erica Strauss, author of The Hands-On Home, calling in to answer Dean's question this week. Uh, Dean wants to know about the safety of paraffin-sealed canning jars. Back in his childhood, Dean tells me he ate hundreds of jars of jelly and jam sealed with paraffin wax and never had any problems. But he looked up this method and found out that today it's really discouraged. So why the change, he wonders, and is there ever a place where paraffin wax sealing is appropriate to use. So first off, lots of you may not be familiar with paraffin wax sealing, so let me explain what we're talking about here. This is a technique that used to be used for high sugar, high acid food like jams and jellies, the kind of stuff that nowadays you'd only process for five to ten minutes in a water bath canner. Back when jams and jellies were sealed with paraffin, they were typically far higher in sugar than modern recipes call for for jams and jellies, so much so that just the sugar content itself provided a very strong barrier to microbial spoilage. So to seal this kind of high sugar, high acid jam or jelly with the paraffin, the grandmas who used to do this would basically uh, ladle their boiling jelly into a hot sterilized jar and then slowly pour thin layers of melted paraffin wax over the top of the jelly. And they would keep doing that, pouring these layers in until they had, you know, about a half inch of wax or so on top of the jam or jelly. And the wax provided an airtight seal. And then you could put a lid, a paper covering or something over the paraffin to protect it. But the paraffin itself was what was preventing air from getting 
into the jam or jelly. So the lid was just to protect the wax. So why no more paraffin sealing when we can? Well, there's one real problem with the paraffin seal method. It has a very high failure rate. Unlike a modern two-part lid, there's no real way to be sure that the seal that you've created is airtight. There's no equivalent to the lid popping down to tell you that you have a good seal. So if you were very good and patient and you didn't have any water or jelly mixture clinging to the edge of your jar that could create an air passage, and if the wax didn't cool too quickly and crack, and if you didn't jostle your jar while it was cooling, then, you know, everything might be fine with this method. But the high failure rate of the wax seal meant there was a much greater chance for a favorite jar of jam to go moldy in storage. And since there was really no way to identify the bad seals before you put your stuff into storage, you couldn't just set them aside in the fridge to eat sooner like we do with a failed seal today. So given the increasing availability of the two-part lids, the modern two-part canning jar lids, and the greater emphasis that we now place on safety over sort of just pure survival in modern canning, use of the wax seal is really no longer recommended. And that doesn't mean you won't still see some diehard, you know, vintage technique people using it. But there's really not a lot to be said for the technique. The paraffin wax sealing method is also quite a lot of work compared to the modern two-part rings and flats lid approach. Uh, The technology that we use today was invented in 1915, I think, by Alexander Kerr of Kerr Jar fame. So it's pretty understandable why so many of our grandparents used this approach. They were doing things the way they had learned and what was familiar for them. But over time, the two-piece metal lids that we're probably all very familiar with have become very common, ubiquitous, easy to get a hold of, and very affordable. So between that and the changing standards for food preservation and canning safety, sealing with paraffin wax has all but died out and is absolutely not considered an approved canning method. So I do not personally recommend this method, and I would strongly encourage you to just stick with the easier, more reliable, and well-tested two-piece canning lids or one of the European-style rubber gasket and glass lid sealing methods. Um, That's been really well-tested for the European market. So both of these methods for sealing jars safely uh, have established protocol and standards that make them simple and safe. But let's say we want to do a thought experiment. Suppose you are in a real Teotihuacan, poop hits the fan, end of the world situation, where you cannot get metal two-piece lids. And let me just take this opportunity to remind the TSP community um, that if you do can your own produce or meat, really you should consider buying your lid flats in bulk. Personal experience tells me that the flats are reliable and good and seal well for several years, so I like to keep a minimum of a year's worth of flats on hand beyond what I expect to use in the immediate upcoming canning season. Just remember to FIFO, first in, first out, your lids, your flats, um, and of course, the rings, the other part of that two-part lid, those can be reused indefinitely for years and years as long as they don't um, kind of deform out of their circular shape or get overly rusty. So if you're even kind of sort of into preparedness, buy your flats in bulk uh, and you'll never run out, we hope. But what if you really are on the other side of the zombie apocalypse and somehow you have fruit and jars and paraffin, but you have no two-piece canning lids? Or what if the only thing between you and starvation is a jar of strawberry jam with a paraffin seal? 
Well, for starters, if you're in that situation, the risk factors here aren't the sort of silent killers like botulism, but rather visible ones like mold growth. So if you know the jar is full of a high acid, high sugar product, and you open it up and there's absolutely not a speck of mold to be seen, and if the zombies are breathing down your neck, you know... The jar is almost certainly fine. I would personally go ahead and eat it. But if you open a jar and there's any sign of mold growth, even a little speck, you guys know what to do. Throw it out. It's not worth it. Mold where you don't want it is gross, obviously, and it does change the flavor and the color of jams. But mold growth can also mess with pH of a canned product. And while the risk of something more serious than mold taking hold in the very high sugar jams of the paraffin wax canning days was probably almost zero, today's lower sugar jams aren't quite so robust on their own when exposed to air. So more sinister bacterial contamination might be waiting under that mold. And that is why when it comes to mold in any canned food, no matter what the sealing or processing method, if you see mold, just throw your canned product out. It's really not worth it. If you do have to seal a high acid, high sugar food with paraffin, you're going to need to keep a few things in mind. Wax sealed jars will not last as long as two-piece canning jar lidded jars. You can typically get several years out of most food canned in the modern way. They say a year, but realistically that's sort of for vitamin content and sometimes color and that kind of stuff. Food safety, if the seal stays good, typically isn't affected really ever. So You can get a lot of storage out of your modern canned jars, but paraffin sealed jams aren't the same. You really should keep them in a cool root cellar type storage environment to maximize their lifespan, and you should use them quickly, within a few months to a year max. And even in the zombie apocalypse, wax sealing is only suitable for high acid, high sugar things like jam or jelly, things that are essentially pre-cooked that you'd process for only five or 10 minutes in your boiling water bath canner. So no pickles, no tomato products, and never, ever, ever any low acid foods like meat or unpickled vegetables. Because there's no opportunity for sustained boiling of the preserve in the jar with the paraffin wax method, no matter how how neat and tidy you are, you just can't ensure that you've killed off potentially harmful microbes or mold spores that may have been introduced to your food uh, from your jars or your equipment or just from stuff falling out of the air. So if against my suggestion you do find yourself doing this, here's what the approach is. Get yourself uh, a cheap pot from the thrift store because you're going to have to melt your paraffin, which is a wax. And once you use a pot for melting wax in, you're going to have a really hard time using that pot for much else. So in a cheap, not family heirloom kind of uh, pot or double boiler or crock pot, melt your chopped paraffin. Be very careful that you don't heat the wax over 375 degrees as you're melting it. Otherwise, the wax itself can burn. Now, make your jam and jelly, and while the jelly is piping hot, like right off the boil, ladle it into pre-sterilized boiled jars, leaving about an inch of headspace. Make sure there's no messiness on the inside of your jars, nothing on the um, inside edge that could hinder the airtight sealing of the paraffin. If you have anything like that, that's going to compromise the wax. You're going to have to clean it off. Once your paraffin is melted, it'll turn clear, and then you gently ladle it in thin layers over the top of each jar to kind of create a plug. 
uh, on top of the jam or jelly. And you repeat this until you've built up you know, about a half-inch-ish layer of wax. You leave the jars be, just let them sit until the paraffin has cooled and turned opaque and hard again. Once this does this, you can cover your jar with paper or cloth or lid to protect the wax. Now, opening a paraffin sealed jar can sometimes be a little bit of work. There are stories of people, you know, dropping their jars and the jar shatters, but the wax seal stays completely intact. So, you know, really strong seal. Um, and if the wax is in good shape, you can often just sort of carefully, you know, cut around the edge and then tip, push, or pry off the wax with a knife um, to remove that plug of wax that'll be on top of your jam or jelly. But other times, um, especially if maybe the preserve is getting a little bit older, the wax can almost crumble and fall right out. And that's the unpredictability that has really led to the demise of paraffin wax sealing as a preserving technique. It's just not that reliable compared to the modern method. In any event, um, once you remove the wax from your jam or jelly, do be prepared to pick little bits of paraffin off the surface of your jam and jelly. In the old days, kids sometimes like to chew the uh, jam-wax combo, sort of like those candy wax lips that we used to have when I was growing up. Not sure I can support that from a food safety standpoint, but hey, we used to live dangerously. So Dean, I'm sure your grandmother was doing things the way she'd been taught with the paraffin wax sealing. She was probably a really good, careful, methodical canner who made sure her wax layers fully covered the preserve and everything was done at the proper temperature and in a nice, clean environment. But bottom line... The science and the standards and the technology in canning has moved on. So while I hope this segment has given you some really good background on paraffin wax sealing, since those times have changed, I do advise you to stick with the more modern methods when it comes to your own canning. That said, it's really fun to learn about the old ways, and you never know when the zombies are breathing down your neck. It might be handy information to have. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. Uh, again, my book is The Hands-On Home. And, um, you know, if you like the kind of stuff I talk about, go check it out on Amazon. It's got lots of reviews. You can see if it's the kind of thing you would like. In the meantime, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, TSP community. Keep those questions coming. And uh, I'll chat with you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. Um, much like the the guy that asked the question, I uh, I ate a lot of jams jellies uh, in, in my childhood that you had to pop the wax off of to first. I don't know that it's unsafe in any way. I, I really don't. I, I I'm not big on the whole safety police thing that that the whole world seems wrapped up in now. Where when a child rides a bike now, they're pretty much wrapped in bubble wrap before they can get on a bicycle and ride in a backyard for God's sakes. But my my big agreement with Erica on this one is it's just a pain in the ass. I mean, why would you, when you can just go through all this crap, when you can just throw it in a hot water canner with your, your rings and, and, and flat lids and be done in about 10 minutes? I mean, that that's the point here. So it's just easier. So it's it, to me, again, it's not a safety concern. It's a, It actually would take more effort. And, and, and canning lids are cheap. They're just cheap. As for uh, those who are saying, Tattler, Tattler, I've gone away from Tattler lids with our canning. I, I've had too many failures. Um, I've heard they've made them better. They fixed some of the problems, whatever. I'm I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. When I look at how how you know we don't can five thousand cans of of, of food a, a year or anything, and when I look at how cheap the 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 because the, the rings you don't get rid of, just the the top lids, it, it's just not worth it to me. And I, I'm all about what's my time worth, you know. Uh, anyway, next question we have is for Stephen Harris on keeping insulin stored. Uh, and specifically, this individual wanted to store insulin in a vehicle. Uh, 
Steve is going to get quite animated, but like he's going to explain. It's because this is a life and death question. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. So now listen to me carefully, very carefully. I am not being bitchy or whatever in this answer. I am being stern. I am being dead ass serious because this question is about life and death. And if you misinterpret what I say, you're going to die or someone's going to die. So listen to me carefully and listen to my words carefully because this is a dead-ass serious question and I am going to give you the dead-ass serious answer. So the gentleman writes to me and says, I need the best way to keep insulin in a car stored for long term. Details. My daughter is a type 1 diabetic and wears a pump. So I would like to be able to keep insulin and the small amount of supplies to change her her infusion set in both of my vehicles in case we need it. Okay, this girl has a pump attached to her body she wears all the time, and it feeds her insulin. For everyone listening, understand this. When this little girl runs out of insulin, she's dead. In about three to four days, she dies. This is how serious this is. This is how serious preparedness is. This is how serious stuff is on the Survival Podcast. And Jack brings you these types of answers that you can bet your life on. There is no diet she can be on that will prevent her type 1 diabetes. There is no herb or pill she can take or that can be stored. No insulin, no life. She's dead. Insulin can stay at room temp for about 30 days, depending upon the brand. A lot less in higher temps, and if you want to store it for months and months, you need refrigeration ability. So if you want three or four months of insulin to go with your three or four months of food and water storage, you need some type of refrigeration, depending upon your climate and the time of the year, and then insulin can't freeze. The freeze temp of insulin is 28 degrees Fahrenheit, not 32 degrees Fahrenheit. The gentleman goes on to say, insulin should be kept at between 2 and 8 degrees Celsius or 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit. So I would like to put a small refrigerator in both of my vehicles that I could store the insulin, which is about the size of a C battery, and the rest of the supplies, which could fill a Sucrete's container. The two vehicles are a Honda Odyssey and a Dodge Sprinter. I just love it when people tell me their vehicle and their engine size. It doesn't matter. My idea was a small solar setup running a small fridge which contained the insulin at some 5 degrees C phase change material to stabilize temperatures such as, and he gives me a link to a phase change material that phase changes at 5C. He sends me to a website with a very expensive phase change material which is basically something like ice but not made of water that melts at something other than 32 degrees Fahrenheit, in this case 5C stuff is expensive as hell and it's got about half as much of the cold energy as ice does ice has twice the cold ability and it's free if a small setup is impossible what larger setup would you suggest for the sprinter uh, my answer is nothing and here it comes 
Okay, I have privately consulted with others on insulin, so this is not new to, new to me. And I just had some guy who wanted the same thing, a refrigerator for his vehicle for four extra EpiPens. He's got two kids with food allergies, life-threatening food allergies, so he carries four EpiPens on him all the time, two for each kid. Plus, he wanted spares to keep in the vehicle, and you can't let EpiPens get hot. And he lives in Texas and wanted to store them in his vehicle. Okay, for all of you, the idea of a refrigerator in a vehicle is impossible. One, if it was a Peltier Junction cooling system, they can only cool 40, 40 degrees below the ambient. If it's a compression-based refrigeration system like all regular refrigerators, not only would it never, ever work in a vehicle, because the vehicle can easily get over 150 degrees Fahrenheit on a sunny day, and you're just not going to cool the inside of a refrigerator to 40 degrees when it's 150 friggin' degrees, let alone the whole compression cycle won't be able to give up its heat because it's 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember, to make cold, you make heat. But you don't have enough battery in the vehicle, even if you got my Dodge diesel with dual batteries. You don't have the battery to pull it off either. And the idea of trusting your daughter's life to the temperature of the insulin based on solar panels is basically Russian roulettes with six bullets in the chamber. It will fail and she'll die. So what is the answer for a prepper who wants three, four, six months of insulin storage? And I got to thank Desert Dog for his help on this subject. We've talked a lot about insulin and insulin storage on Zello in the past. And you've heard Jack mention Zello. So here's the answer. You keep it in the refrigerator while you have power. This is at home. When the power fails, or if you want to transport it in the real world and it's a hot day, or with you in the car on a hot day, you get a vacuum stainless steel thermos from Amazon, and you put ice in the thermos, and then you put the insulin into the thermos with it. Since there is ice water in the thermos, it will never, ever get below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And since insulin freezes at 28 Fahrenheit, it will never, ever reach 28 Fahrenheit. So the insulin will never freeze and thus will stay cold. You don't have to stick with 5 degrees Celsius. Going to the park for a day, take the thermos with ice in it. Going for a camping trip. Take the thermos with ice in it. It'll stay cold for a good or three, four days, depending upon how often you open it up in your ambient. I'm talking about a good stainless steel brand thermos, thermos, a vacuum thermos with a narrow mouth, just big enough to put the insulin in, not a wide mouth thermos. Make sure the ice cubes going into there are small. So for long-term home preparedness, when the power fails, your refrigerator fails, and your insulin will last at most a month, and so then you die. So you better have fuel stored to run a small generator, to run a small ice maker, to make ice that you keep on putting into your multiple thermoses that you have with all of your insulin in all of the thermoses. In a disaster, all of your insulin gets moved to the thermos bottles instantly. So you make sure you have enough bottles, thermos bottles, to make sure you can make enough ice and store your insulin in the thermos. 
I have been making ice for over a decade with an ice maker. And I use an ice maker that I have on solar1234.com. It's on Amazon. It draws about, it costs about $169. And it makes about one pound of ice cubes per hour. So about 24 pounds of ice per day. It draws about 120 watts when the compressor is running. I doubt if a thermos will even hold one pound of ice, so it will make ice for your insulin pretty quickly. You'll be making ice in during the day and then storing it for, for three or four days. Note, notice, I am not talking about powering your damn refrigerator to keep the insulin cold. A refrigerator sucks for power consumption and sucks for insulin uh, storage compared to a vacuum thermos. Do you want to have two as one, one as none, three is for me, and make ice for your for, from from your generator and your car and from solar power? So generator, car, solar power. Then listen to the solar chicken coop episode I did for Jack on TSP, and it's up on solar1234.com. Note, this is not cheap. To make a solar system that you would bet your life on through two weeks of clouds in the winter, to make ice to keep your insulin cool in a thermos, you're talking seven, eight hundred thousand dollars in solar panels and batteries. Want to know how to store your fuel for years? What type of fuel treatment? What type of containers other than the horrible five-gallon EPA containers? Containers. Which ones will work for you? Listen to my fuel and fuel storage class on Stephen1234.com. An $89 two-cycle 700-watt generator from Harbor Freight or Northern Tool and a few hundred dollars in fuel storage. Listen to my class on fuel and fuel storage. Will work better than solar panels will, and it'll work day and night, sunny or cloudy, and at $89 for a generator, you can afford to get two, so where two is one, one is none, plus you still have your car and an inverter for three is for me. Listen to how to power your house from your car from Stephen1234.com is probably the best thing in the world I have ever done with Jack. So the answer is that simple. Ice and a thermos, and the insulin goes into the thermos. No refrigerator in a car with solar panels and a Death Star in orbit above it. Keep it simple, stupid. This is what will work in a disaster every time and everything has gone to hell. Thank you very much for listening to my very stern and very serious but not bitchy answer. Write me with any and all questions, and believe me, I will take them very seriously, and I will answer them to you with world-class knowledge that I know you are going to bet your life on. Thank you. This is Steve Harris, Stephen1234.com, for all of my stuff if you want to know more. Bye. Okay, so my only addition here is that, and I think it can be inferred from what Steve said, but... Maybe there's a misconnect here with what, why this guy wants to do this. My guess is that right now he's pretty much doing what Steve says. You know, some kind of uh, thermos or something to take insulin with you when you're gone. He may be thinking, well, what the hell do I do if I end up like having to be away from home and all I've got is my vehicle for three or four weeks? Um, you know, in the end, you're going to have to figure out how to get fuel for the vehicle. But... Steve's advice on the ice maker. With an ice maker, your vehicle, 
And an inverter, if you can get water and gas, you can keep making ice. And that is much more of an efficient way to use energy. So with your thermos bottles and your ice maker and your inverter, you have like this mobile kit you can take with you to, uh, to, to keep that insulin, you know, stored. And, um, you know, if you have a truck, you can carry some external fuel cans and stuff like that, which is good policy anyway. And in 99% of any kind of instance, um, you are, you are probably going to be able to get some other source of, of resources or whatever. And the, the big thing is to be able to take as much of the insulin with you as you possibly can. Uh, from the onset and keep it safe until you get to the point with other resources. If we ever get to the point where it's the zombie apocalypse, right, and it's the, the whole uh, lights out or whatever, I, I, I hate to say it, but people with conditions like this will be some of the first that will lose. They really will be. Um, as to there's no way that you can keep somebody alive who is a type 1 diabetic, um, if someone's on a pump, this is probably a very serious, maybe maybe uh, more difficult to manage. I don't really know, but I know when I asked this question to Doc Bones, if you had a type 1 diabetic, you were trying to get through it, you pretty much have to, to as slowly as possible, starve them to death to keep them around for as long as possible. Um, but but it is it, it can be certainly more than a matter of days that a person can make it in some instances. Uh, I think it all depends on the overall health, age, you know, is the person completely shut down or, you know, I don't know. I, I, that, that's one for, I guess, Bones to answer. Anyway, good stuff, Steve. Let's go ahead and uh, go back to Doc Bones with natural ways to deal with allergies. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Now with over 850 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page, 700 pages, wow, third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, and also the Zika Virus Handbook, both topics you might want to know a little bit about. Today, our question for the expert counsel is from Rob from Central Wisconsin. Here it is. Hey, Jack, this is Rob from Central Wisconsin. And I've got a question for you, or possibly one of the expert council members. What natural remedy for combating allergies? Uh, our allergy season up here in central Wisconsin is in full swing, and Benadryl kicks me to the curb, and I'm a professional truck driver, so that ain't going to work falling asleep down the road. So any advice you guys can give on some natural remedies to help stave off the, uh, the effects of all this stuff and dirt and pollen and everything else we got going on would be awesome. Thanks a lot and thanks for everything you do and for all the help from the expert council and you guys as well. Have a great day. Well, Jack passed this over to me, Rob, and so I think I'll answer your question. Many people have trouble dealing with spring's pollens, but there's also summer's smog, autumn's falling leaves, and winter's house dust, so allergies can be an issue at any time of the year. Some natural remedies for allergies are available that can avoid the typical Benadryl sort of sedative effect that so many people experience. And the first one is to use saline solution, salt water, as a nasal spray. You can find this just about anywhere produced commercially. And, of course, a couple of sprays in each nostril will usually dry you up. You can also make it by using a pint of sterile distilled water, a pinch of baking soda, and a teaspoon of salt. 
Now in your truck, it's probably good to keep windows shut and use the recycle function for the air conditioner, especially as you pass fields full of crops or ragweed. Now if not, run an air filter to try to decrease the pollen count. If you must have your windows open, have sunglasses, that will decrease the amount of pollens that get in your eyes. Peppermint tea or essential oil of peppermint, you can use that as inhalation therapy, might be a useful thing. If you can't make tea, just take two drops of peppermint essential oil, rub between your hands, and then inhale it directly into your nostrils. It'll open you right up in most cases. Dietary means of doing the same thing, other than peppermint tea, would be something like wasabi or maybe horseradish. That can be ingested to give you a similar effect. Using a dehumidifier in the cabin might be a good idea to prevent molds from causing allergic reactions. Also make sure those rugs are clean and dry. They can accumulate allergens as well. Of course, it's always helpful to know what you're allergic to. Have your doctor do some testing so you'll know if an allergen is possible to avoid completely and discuss any natural remedy plans with them as well. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. And hey, make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show and our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. If you like Jack's podcast, you might like ours. We have two, the Survival Medicine Hour, Purely Medical, and American Survival Radio. Current events with a heaping helping of personal opinion. Thanks again. Um, I'll add there, and people will be kind of surprised that I would suggest this because of my stance on vaccines, because I'm so anti-science, because I actually believe in spacing them out and watching for, you know, responses and not giving a child nine doses of vac different vaccines at one shot. I'm not anti-vaccine. I just believe that anything that has a side effect, we should mitigate the risks of the side effect. Anyway, um, my wife, for about 12 years of her life, I only knew her for a couple years toward the end of working for this one uh, doctor, worked uh, for an allergy specialist and they would do the testing that Bones was talking about and then they would do they would come up with a with a, re a regime of injections these allergy shots that would cause the body to stop attacking it basically desensitize the body to whatever it was if you were allergic to a particular type of grass they would actually use small amounts of that um, as injections that would then reduce your sensitivity And she said it worked fantastic. The, the people that came to that doctor and, and, and were miserable, um, and they specialized in allergy shots for children, so it's a, even, you know, think about that, right? Kids don't really, but the, the parents, the kids, they, they thought that, that it was like a godsend. So I would say if you're like chronically, like where it's really disrupting your life, It's something to at least consider, and 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 I've looked into that, and it's not like you know, it's not like shocking the immune system with a whole shitload of mercury or something like that. That's that's not how those those types of injections work, um, and it, it is certainly something to consider if you are a person again whose life is being disrupted by this. And it, what it seems like is the the longer you're on that type of treatment, the less you need. And uh, you maybe not ever get to the point where you don't need it at all, but the less you need. And uh, again, my wife, who is uh, who is actually doing far more research into the negative consequences of vaccine than I am, still is of the opinion that allergy shots are something that are a, a valid medical protocol to be looked into. All right, with that, I want to kind of finish up the show with just a few thoughts on what I'm doing here and why on the Nine Mile Farm. Um, 
I have just finally finished, and I had a video I put out uh, last weekend. I'll put a link in the show notes to it for you guys today. Of uh, the aviary, almost done, right? Absolutely, almost done. And I'll, I'll get a video out this weekend, but it's pretty much going to be done, done. Uh, we had the students come out last week and all, but uh, the overall plan is this: we're building a passive solar greenhouse that is going to house our two uh, IBCs, or uh, International Bolt Containers. Those are the big white cubes you see on the back of trucks going down the road, right, with the metal frame around them. Uh, those two are going to sit in the greenhouse. One of them, at least, is going to be completely insulated with foam board insulation to help it be like the main overwintering tank for the tilapia. We're going to be running Mozambique tilapia in this system. And uh, they'll be our primary fish product. We'll probably also run some catfish and maybe some other things in them. Maybe some of these red ear bream and what have you uh, that I, I have now. And there, there's a lot of plans for a lot of other things in the grow house. So the grow house is the old aviary. What we have done is we have raised up the aviary. So the back wall is about nine feet now. When you walk in there, it's like a cathedral. It just feels great. And the quail are still in there, absolutely. And um, we're going to be... Plumbing all the stuff in and finishing all the plumbing. David's coming over tomorrow. We're going to be doing that. And the reason I'm doing this is I have come to the conclusion that gardening here is just a pain in the ass. Between the rock, between the incessant weeds, between my my need being to spend most of my time dealing with the day-to-day the, the -day op, you know, operation of running the ducks, um, I don't have time to be gardening like I used to. And what I need is a system that's weed-free. I need a system that just works. I need something that I can walk away from for two days and not look at, and it just gets better. And I believe aquaponics is a big solution to that. Um, I've always kind of seen aquaponics as kind of being like a great idea, but kind of a high-maintenance pain in the ass. When I met David, I learned it didn't have to be that way. So you know, we're kind of working together to kind of skin this system and make it quite a large system. The grow house is a 50-foot-long uh, structure. That allows us to run about 12 grow bed racks, and several of the racks will actually be double stacked. So we might end up, by the time this is over with, with something like 16 uh, grow beds. That's more food than I'll ever be able to eat. It really is. And then you're getting the fish as an additional yield. Additionally, I've done a lot of work now in my kind of zone one little forest where I have, now instead of two tank ponds, I have five. And I'm probably going to, once I get all this, because I've got all this stuff going right now and I need to get it finished, and then I've got the workshop coming at the end of October. So when I, when I look at that, I think, okay, well, maybe then in November I'm going to take this one platform that we built, Josiah Wallingford and I built, that originally was going to put a water catchment tank on, off the back of my big garage, which is, if you've seen my videos, the tanks I'm talking about are kind of right in that same area, but they're running off the power in the, the smaller uh, garage. And uh, I'm going to uh, probably just course that up to about four foot tall. And the and if I, I don't know if I want to go through the trouble of digging it out. Because if I dig, to dig it out, we originally were going to put a water tank on. So it's full of road base, compacted road base. Yeah. So I may just leave it there. And if I come up about two and a half feet, it'll be about three and a half feet high, just coursing it with the big landscape timbers. Not the little cheap ones, but the bigger ones that look more like a, like something you build a little log home out of or something. Um, and line that with a pond liner. I've done the calculations on that. And if I do that, if I go a total of three feet of water depth, 
That'll be about 1,440 gallons, which is uh, a little bit more than the, the five tank ponds are actually holding right now combined. Uh, that'll be a significant additional system. And I, I've come up with a couple different ways that I might put a secondary system with an overflow. The reason I would do it that tall is because then I don't have to fence it like I've had to fence the, the tank ponds. The ducks won't be able to get in there because ducks in a small pond are a no-go. It's a no-go. It's a green mess if that happens. Uh, and it also is high enough that I don't have to fence out the dog because Charlie was a nightmare on the tank ponds, the, the in-ground ones, until I got fencing around them. Everything I put in there, he'd pull out just because he wanted to play with it. So that would give me yet another 1,400 gallons of, of, of aquatic system. And what we're building here, and I think this is something that people were watching my YouTube videos were struggling with, we're building two different things. The, the, the stuff that's going in the, in the greenhouse and the grow house with the quail aviary, that's an aquaponic system. We're building an aquaponic system and we're building aquatic systems. So the aquatic systems are going to do a variety of things. That, that 1,400-gallon uh, idea, which I'm probably going to do, won't cost me that much to do. It'll cost me the pond liner and some, some landscape timbers and, the, and some big, big spike nails, which I already have because we were going to build several more of those. So the nails are already here uh, just to lay those courses down and, and, and put that in. It would be a very easy thing to do. It's perfectly level already. Um, By doing that, I would have yet another system that I could grow, you know, grow fish out to full size eating size. And tilapia do that in about seven months. And, and my hope would be to be able to produce enough fish here to provide ourselves two or three meals a week. And to, 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 to when we add that to the ducks that we call, the quail that we call, I mean, that really would take away a huge part of our protein requirement from off site. But I also just see that it's easier. It's just easier. And then I've got the main pond, which is you know a small pond, but it's 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 fairly large. It's probably thirty thousand gallons when I did the calculations on it. Uh, that we have over three hundred catfish, and now they're just getting the eating size. And what I want to be able to do is have all these systems work together. So in the small tank pond system, I now have three tanks that that are about one hundred fifty gallons apiece, and I have very small fish in there. Those fish can be grown up till they're larger. They can be then transferred to the aquaponic system. They can go to the new 1,400-gallon pond, or they can go into the great big pond down at the other end of the property. And I just don't think you can have too much water. And another thing I really want to work on being able to grow, and I just haven't been able to find a source for them, and I need to like just start going to all the Asian supermarkets so I find one locally that just sells them, is, is water chestnuts. I need a place that sells fresh water chestnuts. They are fantastic, and they, they are incredibly prolific. They're one of the most uh, prolific plants in the world, the highest harvest by weight per square foot of any plant you can grow. I did them one year, and I ended up eating them all because I had a place I think I just ordered more starters from, and they went away. Um, and I grew, oh, my, I had, I had them coming out of my ears, and I had three, um, three pots, three like big square pots that were about like, a foot and a half by a foot, And that was it. And they just, it was like one, like where'd the dirt go? I had them in, uh, growing in a, a compost dirt mixed. And those, they were just sitting in one of the tank ponds. So it would wick up and stay constantly saturated, which is what they like. And there was like almost no space left in there. It was just like water chestnuts everywhere. So that's, that's something I'd like to grow. I don't know how much aquatic plants, like I'm not into growing taro and stuff like that. Um, we're growing a lot of duckweed. And you can eat duckweed. It doesn't actually taste bad, but it doesn't taste really good either. But the duckweed is, is a food stock. So the quail eat the duckweed. 
Turkeys eat duckweed. Ducks eat duckweed. Fish eat duckweed. So by having some of the tanks where the fish that are in there aren't big enough and, and, and hungry enough to devastate the duckweed, and it doubles its size every couple days, we're able to pull duckweed from that and feed other fish with it. We're able to feed the turkeys with it. Turkeys love it, man. When they see me get near the pond, they're just all there like, come on, man, we know what's up. Give us some of that green stuff. And uh, so that's another component to this, and that's actually kept the water beautiful. Since I've added uh, the duckweed to the uh, tank ponds, they're just it's crystal clear water. You put your hand to the bottom, you can see your hand all the way to the bottom. And that's the non-aquaponic system, right? That's the aquatic system. There's no filter there. There's, there's no filter to that system at all. And it's been running for three years. I've just added the three additional tanks, and those do have sort of a filter because they're full of uh, lava rock in the bottom, about seven inches deep, with perforated drain pipe uh, underneath that lava rock that allows the water to flow at the bottom of those tanks down to the next tank. So I'm pretty excited about this system. Um, we've we've done a lot of good work this year. A lot of things didn't happen this spring when I hurt my knee that should have. So I've got a lot of like irrigation automation to put in when it's, it's now cooled off and, and what have you. Um, but I'll be sharing all of that with you guys on my YouTube channel. I think sometimes you guys forget I do have a YouTube channel. You just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on the YouTube banner there, and it'll take you to my channel. Or my YouTube handle is Survival Podcasting. So check out the YouTube channel. I've been putting a lot of stuff up there, and I know we get like a 150,000 downloads to the show, and I put up a video, and I'll get two or 3,000 views over the first week. So I know a lot of you guys don't go to the channel or what have you, and it, it, it might be worth doing. Uh, I've got some pretty cool stuff there beyond the Duck Chronicles. Uh, I know some of you follow just that playlist. Anyway, um, if you like this show and the work that I do and the YouTube stuff and all that together, you can support us by joining the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more, and that's all I'll say about that today. The other way you can help support the entire community is by doing business with the Survival Podcast Member support directory, right? These are people that are members of this community that have businesses that want to do business with you. Today's sponsor of the directory is Crazy Good Pens. They're a business started right out of the TSP audience. Their owner, David, crafts these custom-turned pens by hand and can even take custom orders. You can check out his Etsy store by following the link on the TSP directory listing. Crazy Good Pens. Check them out at tspbiz.com. Next up, um, the other way you can support me and the work I do is by shopping Amazon through tspaz.com. Go to tspaz.com. Whenever you do your Amazon shopping, it doesn't matter what you're buying. It'll, it'll, you'll still support the work that we're doing. You can buy dog diapers if you want to. I'm uh, putting up an item on, t on tspaz today, though, that I think is one of the... Uh, One of the products that I've, I've actually talked about before, but I've never fe featured on T-Spaz, they are E-Tech Cities, the company name, LED Nightlight, Flashlight, and Rechargeable Emergency Lights. These things are cool. They look kind of space-age. They're like a white, sleek thing with a little button in the middle, and uh, you plug it in the wall, and then you take it and you set this thing in there like a cradle, like kind of a phone in a cradle is kind of how it looks, but there's no plug for the part that disconnects. The part that disconnects is the light. Uh, I don't know exactly how it works, some kind of magnetic transfer for powering the uh, batteries or whatever, but it keeps them charged up. They have a motion sensor on them. This means you plug one in your hallway, you get up in the middle of the night because you want to get a drink of water, you walk into the hallway, boop, it comes on, and if it doesn't sense any motion for 30 seconds, boop, it goes off. So it's pretty cool that way alone. The big thing is if the power goes off, they come on. Well, then you can reach down, pick it up, like taking a phone out of its cradle, so there's no cable, right? Like, remember the old phones? Some of you guys are too young to remember what I'm talking about. You pick it up, and it, it, you can take it around with you. You can push a button on it, 
And then he can change it from where the whole front of the face is lit up to the ends lit up as a flashlight. Okay, this is why you need this. I'm going to paint a picture for some of you guys with kids. Your spouse is not home. Your uh, kid is in the playroom playing, and he's old enough to play by himself, but he's still young enough to be scared. You're taking a shower. You have soap in your hair, and the lights go out. He's crying. He's scared. You're naked. You have soap in your eyes. You can't see because it's pitch dark in the bathroom. You're trying to help the kid. He's crying, Mommy or Daddy, beating on the door. He's afraid. He's sitting still because he doesn't want to walk around. It's pitch dark. Okay. <laughs> you have these. Lights go out. Little Billy is illuminated with beautiful glowing LED light. And, of course, you have one in your bathroom because that's – you should do that if you're single because you're in the bathroom. You know, most people don't have windows in their bathroom or what have you. Lights go out in there. It's really dark. It's slippery. Accidents in the bathroom, et cetera, right? So their light comes on. You get dressed because you can see to do so. You take your light. You find a little billy. You go get all the stuff out of your blackout kit, right? Or – You stumble around, you fall, you get soap in your eyes, little Billy cries, you cry, everybody cries because you didn't have a power failure light. Now, here's the real thing. Seriously. I've tried a bunch of these. I have some reviews on my, my Amazon, or my Amazon, my YouTube channel from years ago of a couple different kinds that I no longer recommend because what happens is you plug them in and eventually they overcharge and they stay on all the time. They don't last. They don't work and you throw them away. They get hot, uh, because they're overcharging and they become a danger. These are the first ones I've found. I've had them running now for about a year and a half. No problems at all. They don't overcharge. They always seem to work. They have a good life expectancy, and you get two of them for $29. Bucks. Two of them for $29. Bucks. They have one downside. That is, because of the way they're designed, they take up a whole wall outlet. You can't like plug them in the top and still plug in the bottom. Um, I'll tell you how much I like them. Where I wanted them, I just popped out the electrical box. Now, you've got to know what you're doing to do this. Got a quad box, cut it out, put another wall box in there, a quad wall box. Popped a quad box on them because they'll close up one half of that. You still have two outlets. So I, I thought they were that valuable that I, I, I actually switched over several of my outlets to quad boxes. Um, if you don't know how to do that, you can get an electrician to do that. You know, that's a nice thing anyway, just having more outlets. And there's, there's other things you can do to make, you know, replace those outlets in some ways with a power strip somewhere else or something. But, uh, man, I just think these things are fantastic. tspaz.com, you can learn more about them, uh, or you can just click through the main link and go straight to Amazon and buy whatever you're going to buy. I try to bring you cool, interesting stuff every day on tspaz.com. Last up, what song are we going to have for you guys today? I wanted to give you something kind of cool for your weekend. This is a song I've been threatening to play for you guys for a while. If you're driving, don't let this get you into trouble. This is... Uh, Again, this is a song that I mentioned earlier and said I would play it eventually. This is Rush, and this song is called Red Barche. And when I was a kid anyway, right, when you got your first car, I had my big old Pontiac Grand Prix. It wasn't exactly a fast car, but it was a fast car. It just took a while to get there, right? It wasn't a quick car, but it was a, it was a very fast car. 400 uh, small block with a Rochester Quadrajet carburetor. Big old low-lead sled, man, right? And, uh, you know, the, one of the first things I did when I got that car was pull out that big honking AM radio 
And it, it, even though it was from the, the era, it didn't even have like an eight track tape. It was just a big old, I can't believe how big it was considering all it was was the AM radio. It was like pulling like a, a bowling ball out from behind the dashboard and it was hard to get out. But I got that sucker out of there and I'd gone down to Radio Shack and I bought my little, uh, little, uh, stereo head. Like it was like a 20 watt stereo. They call it a head. It was just a stereo. Uh, and I think that was like 80 bucks back then. That was a lot of money. It was a lot of the money I'd saved up to be able to buy this car, put aside for a stereo, some six by nine speakers, pull those stock speakers out, six, nine by speakers in the back. And then there was a, it was like 40 bucks for this little amplifier. And it was like an 80 watt amp. And the way that car was set up, there was like a, uh, like a, like a holder. And that amp just set right perfectly in that holder. I drilled a hole in the back of it, ran it up, plugged it in that stereo, and I started making my tapes. My cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes, right? You'd sit at the radio sometimes if you didn't have, uh, you know, some other place to tape it from. Like if you weren't just making a mixtape from tapes you already had, you'd listen to the radio because you knew sooner or later that song would come on and you'd record and you'd make up your tapes. And then one tape that you always made up when you were a teenage boy growing up in the coal region, and I bet you all over the country was the same, was the driving tape. The one when you're going to go down the back roads, you're going to haul ass, you're going to make turns a little bit too fast. And I don't think there's a person out there from the 70s and 80s that ever made one of those tapes that didn't put this song on that tape. And when you hear the lyrics, if you've never heard the song before, you'll understand why. Anyway, it is kind of a motivated, pepped-up song, and uh, I wanted to send you your, your weekend with something kind of kick-ass. So here we go. Rush Red Marche. Red Marche. 